Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. You are joining us on a perfect uh, week to come to West Hills because we are getting ready to dive in head first to one of the most uh, powerful, important books in all the Bible, the book of Exodus. Uh, it is truly difficult to overstate the significance of this book as uh, Philip Graham Ryken, uh, whose wonderful commentary on Exodus I consulted extensively in preparing uh, this morning's message. As Ryken explains, for Jews, Exodus is the story that defines their very existence, the rescue that made them God's people. For Christians, it is the gospel of the Old Testament, God's first great act of redemption. The Exodus was the great miracle of the Old Covenant. The New Testament writers often used the Exodus to explain salvation in Christ Indeed, a complete understanding of the gospel requires a knowledge of the Exodus. In some ways, the whole Bible is an extended interpretation of the Exodus. And at the same time, Riken also points out for us that the Exodus finds its ultimate meaning and its final interpretation in the person and the work of Christ. In one way or another... He says the whole Bible is about Jesus. So on the one hand, we can't fully understand the rest of the Bible without this book of Exodus. And yet, because Jesus has clearly told us in the New Testament that all of Scripture ultimately points us to him, we also can't fully understand the book of Exodus apart from its fulfillment in Christ. And so in order to read Exodus rightly in our study together in the months to come, we're going to have to look ahead and consider how uh, Exodus serves as a paradigm of God's redemptive work throughout the rest of redemptive history, but we also have to look back and read Jesus back into the Exodus story as well. That's what the New Testament authors did. Jude, in his epistle, told his readers that Jesus was the one who delivered his people out of Egypt. Jesus. The Apostle Paul identified Jesus as the bread God sent his people from heaven while they wandered in the desert. When God brought water forth from a rock, according to Paul, the rock was Christ. If I said to you, I'm going to describe for you a story from the Bible, you tell me which story it is. God's people were in trouble. They were in terrible bondage, enslaved. With no hope of deliverance except through a supernatural, miraculous work of God himself. But God raised up for his people a savior, a child whose life was threatened from day one by a jealous, wicked king who was rejected by his own people, but who God nevertheless used to set his people free. By means of sacrifice, there was a cost associated with the ransom of God's people, the blood of the lamb, Passover lamb. And in the wake of that sacrifice, God himself intervened and broke the laws of nature in order to bring life out of death. And not only that, God then promised to stay with his people. They enjoy God's very own presence to lead and guide them through the wilderness of life in a fallen world. 
And God also guides them by giving them his word. And God calls his newly rescued people to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation to display God's goodness and proclaim his salvation to all nations, albeit while still traveling this world as pilgrims and exiles who have not yet arrived in our true homeland. Now, what story did I just describe for you? Was that the Exodus or is that the gospel? Was that the story of Moses or Jesus? The Israelite story or our story? The answer, of course, is both. One of the most telling passages in the New Testament that makes this Christ-Exodus connection undeniable is Jesus' transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, where we read, Behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You know the original Greek word for departure there? Any guesses? Exodus. Moses showed up on the mountain to talk with Jesus about his exodus that he was about to accomplish on Calvary through his death and resurrection. The exodus story is the gospel story. Which means, brothers and sisters, for all of us who are in Christ Jesus this morning, who have been saved by grace through faith, it is our story as well. And so we read it not just historically for factual information, not merely theologically for mental stimulation, but we read it most of all personally, spiritually, practically for heart transformation as God's people, as Riken explains, God has given us the book of Exodus as he's given us every book of the Bible for our practical benefit. When the Apostle Paul wanted to exhort the Corinthians to persevere in the faith, he reminded them of the Exodus. Paul wrote, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses. It's 1 Corinthians 10. Paul went on to explain how despite the fact that God saved them in the wilderness, the Israelites turned away from God and perished. And so Paul concluded by saying, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So Paul is saying that what happened to them, the Israelites, was written down for us today. Exodus is intended for our spiritual benefit. Since since Exodus is a story of deliverance from bondage through the work of a Savior, it is the story of the Christian life. So we're not only going to be reading Jesus into the story for the next several months, but we're going to be reading ourselves into the story as well. Now, before we dive into chapter 1 this morning, I want to give you four uh, brief points of context, still at at a macro overview level here. Who, what, where, and when. I've already given you the why. Why do we study Exodus? Because it's really important. Because every book of the Bible is God's inspired word and is profitable for us, because Exodus points us to Jesus. It's his story, and it's our story. For all these reasons, we study Exodus. Now let's consider who, what, where, and when. First, who? Who wrote Exodus? Authorial context. For millennia now, both Jewish and church tradition have ascribed authorship of Exodus to Moses. There are various points in the book itself at which God instructs Moses to write this down as a memorial in a book, chapter 17. And then in chapter 24, when God finishes giving Moses the Ten Commandments and the law, we read, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. 
And then again in chapter 34, when God has to repeat the commandments, he again directs Moses right down these words. The Old Testament corroborates Mosaic authorship over a dozen times. Notably, Deuteronomy 31, 24 states that Moses finished writing the words of the law, that is the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote them all in a book to the very end, Deuteronomy says. Likewise, Jesus himself confirms Mosaic authorship. In Mark chapter 12, he reminds a group of Sadducees about the burning bush story from Exodus 3 in the book of Moses, Jesus says. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus quotes the fifth commandment from Exodus 20 to a group of, a group of Pharisees, and he introduces it with these words, for Moses said, so to question Mosaic authorship is to question biblical inerrancy and to question Jesus' authority. Second, when? When was Exodus written? Historical context. If Moses wrote Exodus, then it must have been completed by the time of his death at the end of the 15th century B.C., around the year 1405, we know. We know the actual Exodus from Egypt took place in the year 1445 B.C., 480 years before Solomon began construction of the temple, according to 1 Kings 6.1, Acts 13 in the New Testament also corroborates that date. Uh, we know Moses was 40 years old when he fled from Egypt the first time. He was 80 years old in chapter 2. He was 80 years old when he led Israel, all of Israel out of Egypt and slavery in chapter 14. And he was 120 years old when he died. And so we can place the whole story, timeline of Exodus, in its even broader historical context. Because we know the, the patriarch Jacob moved down to Egypt to join his son Joseph in 1875. Remember, his son Joseph became vice-pharaoh uh, during Egypt's 12th dynasty in the 19th century B.C. The exodus takes place over four centuries later during Egypt's 18th dynasty, 15th century B.C. And while the Bible doesn't name the pharaoh, we know historically he's probably Thutmose III. Egypt's, considered Egypt's greatest conquering warrior pharaoh, the so-called Napoleon of ancient Egypt, who transformed Egypt into an international superpower by creating an empire that stretched from the Asian regions of Syria in the north to upper Nubia in the south. Thutmose III was also considered a great builder. He constructed over 50 temples. Want to guess how he managed all that? He had some help, as we're going to discover this morning. History tells us that Thutmose's uh, firstborn son did not succeed him as Pharaoh, as was customary, because he died halfway into his father's reign, right around 1445 B.C. Fun fact, uh, Thutmose III's mummy was discovered just about uh, 150 years ago in Egypt. So you can travel to Egypt today and still see the remains of the villain of our story. And on that note, let me just quickly say, in recent years, liberal scholars have tried to undermine not only Mosaic authorship, but the historicity of all of the Exodus story. But you need to be reminded, assured this morning, there is overwhelming archaeological textual evidence to support it. Just a few quick. The, the Leiden Papyrus 348 confirms the presence of Semitic slaves in Egypt at the time of the Exodus. The steel of Merneptah confirms the presence of Israelites living back in Canaan by the 13th century BC. Other ancient findings like inscriptions in the tomb of Rechmire at Thebes de depict prisoners from Canaan making bricks. 
the admonitions of an Egyptian sage. That document describes a series of disasters that sound eerily like the biblical plagues. All of this to say, Exodus is historical fact. So fourthly, you've got why, who, when, how about where? Where do we situate Exodus in its biblical context? Exodus is the second book of the, the, the biblical canon right after Genesis, which most of you will hopefully remember that we finished studying together in the fall of 2021 here. So I was anxious to return to Exodus while the story was still hopefully somewhat fresh in our memories, uh, because as we're going to see in just a moment, we're going to pick up right where the Genesis story left off. Finally, fifth, what? If Exodus is all about, uh, sorry, what is Exodus all about? What is its thematic context? If God created people for his glory in Genesis, then in Exodus, God will create a people, a nation for his glory. If Genesis was all about God's call and covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make them into a great nation. Exodus is all about God making good on that promise. Genesis, God creates, calls, covenants to a people. Exodus, God conserves, claims, and consecrates that people. He conserves, he's going to save, rescue them. He claims he's going to adopt them as his own, treasured possession, and he's going to consecrate them, set them apart from all other nations. Warren Wearsby used uh, Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 as an outline for the entire book, where God is going to declare to Moses, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. So three things there. I will bring you out, God promises, that really points to Exodus chapters 1 through 18. Redemption, God conserves, he saves his people. I will take you to be my people. That's Exodus chapters 19 to 24, God's covenant. The Lord claims his people with his commandments. And thirdly, I will be your God, Exodus 25 through 40. The end of the book, worship. The Lord consecrates his people. He calls them to be holy in their worship of him. Or, as I've tried to mnemonically subtitle our series, Freed to Follow. Exodus 1 through 14 recounts God's freeing of his people from slavery in Egypt, but that's only half the story because God frees us that we might follow him. And in chapters 15 through 40, uh, we're going to see God detail his calling and consecrating of Israel to follow him. As a matter of fact, interesting, uh, commentator Tim Chester points out the Hebrew word used to describe Israel's slavery in the first half of the book is the same word used to describe her worship in the second half. So the movement in the book of Exodus, Chester says, is not so much for, from slavery to freedom as it is from slavery to slavery. But serving God is completely different from serving Pharaoh. Indeed, God's service is true freedom. And what is true of the Israelites is equally true of you and me this morning, church. God frees us to follow him. God has saved us to serve him. It is by grace that we've been saved through faith for good works. Ephesians 2 reminds us. <clears throat> and if we wanted 
to make our subtitle even just a little more clumsy, but a little more accurate, we might say the theme of Exodus is really that we've been freed to follow for God's fame. Because ultimately this book, like every book of the Bible, is all about God's glory. Everything God does over these next 40 chapters, freeing his people, giving his law, even hardening Pharaoh's heart, why does he do it? God tells us on three separate occasions in Exodus why he did it. For this purpose, chapter 9, I have raised you up, God declares to Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Chapter 14, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God does all. Everything in this book, everything in creation, for his own glory, that his mighty name might be made famous among all the nations. As Psalm 106, which is nicknamed the Exodus Psalm, because it recalls this story in worship, Psalm 106 puts it, when our fathers were in Egypt, God saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. So that's the theme of Exodus, free to follow for God's fame. With that introduction, we better dive in, get started. So I invite you to stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter one, God willing, we'll make our way through the, the whole chapter here, verses one through 22. Be reading from the ESV, words on the screen in front. We'd love to give you a Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can see the info bar with the welcome team that would love to connect with you, get you a Bible. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, 
when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then the Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. We pray your blessings on our exposition, our interpretation, application of your word in the weeks and months to come as we study through this all-important book of your holy word, Exodus. God, may you use it and use our time together in the Sundays ahead and this morning for your glory and for our redemption. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in order for my outline, and more importantly for the book of Exodus, to make any sense to you, we are going to need to think back once again to the book of Genesis. Remember I said Exodus is all about God making good on his promises, his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from Genesis, and so let's quickly remind ourselves of that covenant. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, him who dishonors you, I'll curse, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God covenanted three things there to Abram, a land, a nation, and a blessing, or again, mnemonically, a place people and a promise. Now, I don't have time to unpack, again, the massive significance of those three promises as I did when we went through Genesis a year and a half ago, but here is the upshot. Our God, Moses' God, Abraham's God, Yahweh, is a God of life. Everything that our God does is pro-life. Even when God kills, it's because he values life. Ezekiel 33, 11, God declared, I take no pleasure in the death, even of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. So for instance, when God flooded the entire world in Genesis 6, killed every man, woman, and child, save for Noah's tiny family of eight people, why did he do it? Well, God did it for the same reason that a good doctor cuts out all the cancer from your body. And if your body is 99.9% cancer, then you're in trouble. Unless you've got a miracle-working physician, the kind of physician who can bring life out of even just those eight tiny healthy cells 
that are left. And that's what our God does. He is the God of life. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come to give you life and life to the fullest. That is what God covenants to Abraham. Life, people, place, promise, a blessing of life promise of life, of people, descendants as numerous as the stars, lots and lots and lots of life, a place, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's quality of life, a place to settle down and and actually enjoy life, and a promise of blessing. God says, not only am I going to bless you and your offspring, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. That is how pro-life I am. And that sets the stage here for Exodus 1, where we find three scenes or movements in this opening chapter. Number one, life continued. Genesis ended with God preserving the lives of Abraham's descendants, Jacob and his 12 sons and their families, by relocating them down to Egypt to save them from a worldwide famine. Now Exodus picks up right where we left off. As a matter of fact, the very first word in the book is the Hebrew conjunction vav, which means and. It's not in English because for some reason, uh, smart people still have this hang-up about starting a sentence with the word and. Maybe you were told that outdated, stupid grammatical rule. Uh, The Bible proves by starting a whole book of the Bible with the word and that it's okay. And this tips us off that Exodus is just continuing the story of Genesis some 350 years later. And these are the names of the 12 sons of Israel. And while they may now be gone, verse 6, they died, Jacob and his, his sons. Their descendants are now becoming more and more numerous with every passing generation. Verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong, so the whole land was filled with them. Notice, Israel is described here in exactly the same words that God had used in his very first command in creation when he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. So, Riken exposits, in his people Israel, God is fulfilling his plan for all of humanity. So we might say that life not only continued for Jacob's family down in Egypt, it compounded. God blessed and cultivated and grew his people exponentially. But then everything changes in verse 8 with these words. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Did not know Joseph's legacy how he had saved not only his own family's life, but all of Egypt from the threat of famine. Now, 350 years later, this new Pharaoh has forgotten. So kids, let that be a lesson to you about the importance of staying awake in history class. This whole Exodus ordeal could have been avoided. Ignorance is not always bliss. Be deadly. And so I'll just take this as a quick public service announcement opportunity too. I'm going to ask you again, as we have, as we've gone through every book of the Bible, to read Exodus for yourself before you come on Sundays. If you if you didn't read Exodus 1 before you came this morning, that's all right, go read it this afternoon. And then keep going and read Exodus 2 so you're ready for next week. So 
get your ESV study journal on your way out if you don't have one yet, and read week to week. But this whole Exodus ordeal could have been avoided. And, and but then again, so could Joseph's trip to Egypt in the first place. Remember how Joseph got there in the book of Genesis? His own brothers sold him into slavery. And yet, remember what he told them in chapter 50, when they were sure that Joseph was going to get his revenge. Instead, he assured them, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good in order to save many people. So we should hear Joseph's words still ringing in our ears now in Exodus 1, foreshadowing redemption. God has already proven that he is a God of redemption, a God who loves taking evil and turning it and using it for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And God will do it again for his people Israel in Exodus. But first, point number two, before we get there, he will allow them to suffer as life is combated. Pharaoh combats God's pro-life campaign. This ignorant, paranoid, perhaps even racist Pharaoh pronounces, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And watch how he calls into question all three of God's covenant promises here. God had vowed a people, a place, and a promise of blessing. Notice how Pharaoh inverts and attempts to subvert all three of those. God says, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars. The more the merrier. Pharaoh says the people of Israel are too many. We've got to kill them. God says, I'm going to bring you to the promised land. Pharaoh says, "Uh uh-uh. We've got to enslave them to keep them here by force, lest they escape from our land. God says, I'm going to use you, Israel, to bless every nation. Pharaoh says, no way. Not true. If war breaks out, the Israelites are surely going to join our enemies and fight against us. So we need to put them in their place. And because Pharaoh doubts and denies God's three pro-life promises, Pharaoh then opposes life for the Israelites in three different ways, three waves of persecution that he launches against them here. The first is slavery. Verses 11 through 14, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. But it doesn't work. Verse 12 tells us, the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they spread abroad. Uh, What was true of the early church, as we saw throughout our study of the book of Acts last year, where every wave of persecution against the church leads to a massive boom, explosion in conversions and church planning, what is still true today, the fastest growing church in the world. You know where it is? Iran. Iran, the ninth most dangerous country to be a Christian, according to Open Doors Watch List, released just last week. What was true for the early church and today was true 3,500 years ago the Israelites down in Egypt as well. Persecution leads to proliferation. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so Pharaoh ramps up his attacks with a second wave of opposition. On top of slavery, now he orders the slaying of every Israelite baby boy that was born. Verse 16, he commands the Hebrew midwives, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, if it's a son, you shall kill him. 
then thirdly, when even that doesn't work, verse 22, the slaying becomes all-out slaughter, genocide. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, all of them, open season on the Israelites. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. Why? Ignorance? Sure. Paranoia? Undoubtedly. Racism? Perhaps. But more than anything else, as Riken points out for us, Pharaoh was really fighting here against God. Ultimately, this was a spiritual conflict. By enslaving the Israelites, Pharaoh was making a theological point. The Hebrews would not serve their own God. They would work for him. In effect, Pharaoh was claiming to be the Lord of Israel. And by doing so, perhaps without even realizing it, he became the tool of Satan. The Exodus, therefore, was not simply an epic struggle between Moses and Pharaoh, or even between Israel and Egypt. Ultimately, it was another skirmish in the great ongoing war between God and Satan. Friends, our God is pro-life. That means Satan is anti-life. If Jesus came to bring us life and life to the fullest, eternal life, then Satan's whole MO is to destroy life. This morning we're celebrating Sanctity of Life Sunday. This first Sanctity of Life Sunday in 50 years on which it is no longer legal in all 50 states to get an abortion, thanks to the Supreme Court's uh, courageous and righteous decision to overturn Roe versus Wade last year. And we celebrate that momentous decision. Praise God for the lives that he will protect. And we are blessed to have Thrive with us this morning to celebrate. Thank you, Faith and Suze, for being with us. I urge you to visit with them at the table afterward this morning. So blessed by your partnership, all your hard work in this important cause for life in our city and in our country. And yet, pro-life advocacy groups like Thrive would caution us against celebrating too much this morning because they question whether or not abortions have truly declined since June. We don't have the statistics yet. But we question whether or not abortions are declining due to the rapid rise in pharmaceutical abortions. Uh, Just last week, the FDA approved abortion pills for sale by retail pharmacies. Medication abortions are about to skyrocket in our country. Even in uh, states like Missouri, where surgical abortions are illegal. Democrats in the House and the Senate have made it clear they're doing everything in their power to try and rally the votes to codify Roe into law. I'm not sure if you're aware, the House narrowly passed two pro-life bills last week. Here are the bills that barely passed in the Republican majority House. The first bill titled the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act would require that all infants born after attempted abortions receive medical care. It passed in a narrow 220 to 210 vote. Uh, The second measure was a resolution condemning attacks on anti-abortion facilities, groups, and churches. The chamber adopted that resolution even more narrowly, 222 to 219 vote. So the real story for me, anyway, is that 210 
of our elected officials think that a baby born alive after a botched abortion should still be fair game to be killed on the surgical table outside the womb. And 219 of them don't think that pro-life organizations like Thrive, like us, West Hills, should be protected against vandalism and violence. And by the way, both those bills are probably irrelevant anyway because they're expected to fail when they go to the Democrat-led Senate. And so, Christian, if you thought the fight for life was over last June, you need to think again. Uh, The spirit of Pharaoh is still very much alive and well in our country today. Which brings us to point number three, that life must still be contended for. If pharaohs still abound today, then so too must shifras and puas. Those willing to put our necks on the line in the fight to save the lives of the unborn. Those who fear God more than we fear Pharaoh. As Jesus put it in Matthew 10, do not fear those who can kill the body, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. For your inaction, your failure to protect the most vulnerable in our midst. We need advocates for life who are willing even to break the law when necessary, when it goes against God's law. As Peter put it in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. Dare I say we need advocates for life who are willing to bend, perhaps even to break the truth for the sake of life. Any honest examination of this passage has to go there. Let's go there. Are these Hebrew midwives guilty of lying to Pharaoh? And if so, does God really condone, even commend their lie? Pharaoh ordered them to kill the Hebrew baby boys. They don't. He calls them in, asks them why, and they reply, well, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're more vigorous. They give birth before the midwife comes. Some commentators speculate they were telling the truth, or at least a half-truth. Maybe Shifra and Pua. They couldn't possibly have midwifed over an entire Israelite population that on the eve of the Exodus, just a few Decades later, in chapter 12, we will hear has grown to a number of 600,000 fighting men, not including women and children. So estimate, estimate somewhere between 2 and 3 million Israelites. Shifra and Pua couldn't have gotten to all of them, so they must have been the heads of the midwifery operation. And as such, they must have given secret instructions to their employees to take your time getting to the delivery room. That's one interpretation. Philip Ryken Uh, who I've been quoting so much, he offers a different interpretation. He says, their lie, if it can even be considered a lie, was such a whopper that they can hardly be accused of even trying to deceive anyone. He says, if if what Shifra and Pua said was literally true, then why would the Hebrews even need midwives? This is one of those places, he says, where understanding the Bible requires a sense of humor. Speaking tongue-in-cheek, the midwives were making sport of Pharaoh by suggesting that the Hebrews were hardier than the Egyptians. What, he, what they said to him was more of a joke than a lie. Thus, Pharaoh was mocked as well as deceived. Well, maybe that works for you. Softens it enough for some of us to swallow. But I'll just offer a third interpretation for us this morning. Maybe they just lied. And maybe God is just so pro-life that as much as God hates lies... He hates death even more. 
Maybe this is one of those classic lesser of two evils situations where there is no good choice for Shipra and Pua, and so the less bad choice, lying, becomes the best choice. We find biblical precedent for this interpretation elsewhere. The story of Rahab, who lied to hide the Israelite spies in Joshua chapter 2, and in James chapter 2, we're told that she was justified, she was saved for it. Even Jesus got himself in trouble, you remember, with the Pharisees, for healing on the Sabbath. It's bad, it's breaking the commandments to heal on the Sabbath. Pharisees were right about that. But Jesus' point is, it's even worse to let someone suffer when it's in your power to help them, even if it is the Sabbath. It's the lesser of two evils. Was it right and moral for Christians during the Holocaust to hide Jews and lie to the Nazis when they were questioned? Well-meaning Christians can disagree on the answer to that question. It's me personally, cards on the table. I say yes. I say that's what Christians should do. I understand God's word is saying yes, commending that. That sometimes life trumps even the truth. And for those who disagree with me on this and who worry about the slippery slope argument, I'm sure you, your wife asking if she looks fat in that dress, that is not a life and death situation where God commends your lie. I suspect that few, maybe none of us in this room have ever found ourselves in one of those extremely rare situations when it's actually possible to tell a righteous lie. Ethicists call this ethical hierarchicalism, by the way, as opposed to moral absolutism, different philosophies of, of ethics. It's far too late in the sermon to give you an ethics lecture. But Suffice it to say, if it was a lie, we must at least agree that they were rewarded for it. As verses 20 and 21 clearly state, so God dealt well with the midwives, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Why? Because God is so pro-life. God's covenant is a covenant of life, and God is a covenant-keeping God. And as we will see in the weeks to come, no one, not even the most powerful king on the planet, can thwart God's plans, God's promises. If God has promised his people land, offspring, and blessing, then Israel will be plentiful, established, and blessed, with or without Pharaoh's permission. And likewise, brother, sister, if God has promised you this morning life, life to the fullest, if God has promised to work all things together for your good, if you love him and you're called by God, then he will indeed do it. It's a promise you can take to the bank. And neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.